0: Welcome to the Zimcast, a program dedicated to bringing you what's new in agricultural marketing. The Zimcast is the official podcast of AgWired and hosted by Chuck and Cindy Zimmerman.
1: Hello and welcome to the Zimcast. I'm Chuck Zimmerman. I'd like to thank the sponsor for our program and that's Growmark, locally owned, globally strong. The Zimcom team is getting ready to go to the annual National Association of Farm Broadcasting Convention. That will be taking place in Kansas City, Missouri next week. Of course, as you might guess, Cindy and I will be using that as an excuse to go see some grandbabies while we're up there. But that will be after the convention uh, end of the week. In this week's program, I'm going to share an interview I did about 10 years ago in this program, actually, with Ev Greiner, farm broadcaster, many, many years, who just announced his retirement at 92 years of age. I think that's uh, worthy of Hall of Fame right there, wouldn't you say? Well, Everett is definitely an icon in farm radio, especially there in the southeast. He lives in Georgia and I don't know how many years now, maybe 70 years in broadcasting. That's an incredible career. I did get to work with Ev uh, at one point in my career when I worked with Gary Cooper, who is Southeast Agnet in Agnet Media based in Florida. I would say Gary would agree that both of us felt like Ev was one of those mentors when we got started in the business ourselves. Well, my first interview here at Sunbelt Ag Expo is with Mr. Everett Greiner. And, Ev, it's, good to, it's just great to see you again. Actually, it's been, I think we've figured, going on at least 10 years now. And um, let's do a little catching up here. And first of all, for people who may not uh, know about you and your background, just tell me what you're doing now.
0: Well, I do uh, quite a bit. Uh, uh, I stay active and busy because uh, doctors uh, alerted me several years ago to the fact that keeping on is how you keep going. You know, keep going is how you keep going. And so I stay busy. I'm active in several things. But uh, in broadcasting, I do uh, just part-time stuff now. I'm still associated with uh, Southeast Agnet. Uh, On just a part-time fill-in basis, I uh, uh, do one little daily feature, and then I fill in wherever they need me.
1: Well, I remember, you know, before we actually kind of worked together, and that's when I was back working with Gary Cooper at what's now Southeast Agnet too, and we could tell some stories about the old Georgia Network, couldn't we? <laughs> we could. Well, yes, we could. Uh, we don't need to, but <laughs> right,
0: uh, but uh, yes, uh, because I, I, I guess I could say I go back all the way. Yeah. You know. yeah. Well, tell me how long you've been in this business. Uh, really, Chuck, I, I claim 60 years. I I started, I had my first job in broadcasting in 1948, and uh, I have maintained some connection with the broadcast industry uh, all that time. I pulled a four-year stint in the Air Force during that time, but uh, the time I spent overseas, I was quite frequently called upon to... Uh, to uh, you uh, to fill, fill a capacity at uh, AF what we call AFRS Armed Forces Radio Network uh, back in those days and so uh, I've been rather uh, active uh, for a period of sixty
1: years. Well, you've certainly seen agriculture change. Uh, just it's it's hard to even describe the changes we've seen in in the business in the industry, even just in the last ten years. But uh, how would you characterize? What people are going to see and do when they come out to this farm show today versus you know what it was like when they got this thing started. Well, so much has changed here, uh, and the and the
0: technology that I see this year uh, is just as amazing as the technology I saw the first year. And 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 uh, of course, agriculture is a, is a continuous state of change. You know, since our country began when when seventy five percent of our population farmed uh, now it 's less than one percent of the farmers who 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 do the, uh, the ten times the amount of farming uh, and and it's all due to to uh, 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 advances in in technology and the farmer 's productivity. He is unmatched in any in in our whole population.
1: What do you think are some of the main things that are um challenges that are facing the farmer today just especially we can just look here in the southeast like in georgia well uh i think essentially it's
0: the same challenges we've always faced and that is first of all uh growing conditions uh, soil conservation uh uh the 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 crops that we grow and how to take care of those crops uh, how to protect them from insects disease and weather weather we i am convinced i'm i'm one of those that are is firmly convinced that we are indeed undergoing a severe climate change in this world and uh, i see it in my part of the country anyway how it's affected
1: agriculture and of course you know weather's always been the vital uh, input into agriculture yeah number one thing that has an impact on your bottom line that's for sure and well Talking about that, when we look at some of these new energy crops, we're calling it, uh, I know we're going to see some switchgrass on display out here, I guess, that's been grown for uh, converting into a biofuel. What do you think about the idea of growing fuel?
0: I have said from the very beginning that I think farmers hold the key to uh, to a uh, solution to our energy problem. Uh, right now, we're, we're in that that period of time where, where uh, Where it costs almost as much to produce the energy uh, uh, you know the, the inputs t- to to create let 's say ethanol uh, to, you don 't show a, a great deal of advancement there, but I think I think we 're in the early stages, and I think it 's going to be a period of like ten to twenty years before we before we finally come to a place where we can determine this is the best crop, this is the best way this is the best time. And uh, But I do think that farmers uh, will play a very vital role in our final solution, if we ever reach a solution, to our energy crisis.
1: Well, turning back just for a second to the uh, broadcast business, because that's the one uh, you've been in in your whole career, and, and I've been uh, very closely associated with most of mine. What do you think about the business of just radio today? I know that it's... Uh, uh, still, from the ag standpoint, we don't see as many farm broadcasters, but we see still quite a few, and they seem to be doing well. I think uh, radio could
0: be and probably is one of the one of the uh, uh, the best means of communicating with a farmer because it's insta- instantaneous. Uh, he doesn't have to wait for production, and he doesn't have to wait for or scheduled times. Uh, radio is so versatile. But uh, but the changes, I don't know, they confuse me. I should say uh, maybe frighten me, but they confuse me more than they frighten me. Uh, and, and again, it's because of technology. The technology in radio broadcasting is, is, is so different to what it was when I began my career, until I can walk into a Modern radio broadcast studio, and be as confused as if I were on a a, 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 a satellite headed for the
1: moon. <laughs> I understand exactly what you mean, because it's all I can do to try to stay ahead of it. And as much as we do, it's I mean it's changing every day. Seems like there's something new that does it better, faster, smaller, and for less money than it did the year before. You know.
0: Well, but when you get into computers and uh, and uh, iPods and this type thing. And radio can utilize these uh, these uh, advances in technology, and we do use them, and we're going to use them more and more. Uh, the old uh, the old uh, station with a uh, eighteen to twenty four hour format uh, may uh, may have its limitations, but these new means of communications that we in radio use today uh, we're at the bottom of the scale. We've got a long way to go to 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 reach the top.
1: Well, anything else uh, that people who are involved in agricultural communications and marketing might, uh, uh, might be interested? Any thoughts, any words of wisdom for people who want to communicate with today's farmer? Let me put it to you that way. What would you say to him? I think the American
0: farmer is one of the most open-minded people in our country. He is—he's uh, a man who's looking for innovation. He's a man who's looking for technology. He's a man who's r- ready to utilize anything that comes his way. So, uh, so I guess I guess I could sum it up by saying communications. Yeah.
1: Well, and that's the business we're in. That's so we we works. better communicate, shouldn't we? <laughs> <laughs> we we better be able to. <laughs> Next up in this week's program, I want to share an interview from the Export Exchange that just took place in Minneapolis. This Every Other Year conference brings together uh, international grain buyers with representatives from the grain business here in the United States. One of the co-sponsors for the conference is the Renewable Fuels Association. So I'm going to share an interview I did with Kelly Davis with RFA, and she talks a little bit about the value for the conference for RFA and its members. And this includes a co-product from the production of ethanol known as DDGs. First of all, Kelly, tell me what you do for RFA.
2: Um, I'm the vice president of regulatory affairs for the RFA.
1: Well, uh, here in uh, this conference, we're talking with a lot of international buyers for U.S. grains that are coming in here. What's the uh, value reason for RFA to be so involved in this conference?
2: Uh, We have had, uh, we've loved to have this conference, uh, DDGS. We spend a lot of time on ethanol. Uh, There's not a lot of uh, conferences relative to DDGS. We have grown tremendously in the export market for DDGS, and it's become a valuable component for our production facilities.
1: Well, you spoke yesterday on a topic that had to do with um, food safety concerns with DDGS. Tell me a little bit about uh, some of the takeaways you wanted people to get from your remarks.
2: Uh, years ago, as we started uh, putting DDGS in other foreign countries, we had some feedback from their governments about our food safety plans. At that time, the FDA was working on the Food uh, Modernization Act, the Food Safety Modernization Act, we call it FSMA in the industry. Uh, and it came to life in September 2015 with in dates for our industry. All businesses, large and small, are now in full compliance with the Food Safety Modernization Act rules. And so I thought it was a good time to share with our global audience here that the U.S. is uh, continuing its lead in food safety and has extended what people normally think is human food safety. It has been extended to animal feed, and uh, we now call it animal food as well. So how...
1: Is part of the message then for these uh, buyers uh, to talk about the quality and those kinds of uh, efforts we've had to make sure that we do have a product that they can be feel very comfortable purchasing.
2: Yes, that's uh, one of the things that we all sell our product, maybe on a pro-fat type basis, so analytically we've all now understand how the product moves around the, the globe, how it's used in, in animals around the globe, and although they continue to learn and new changes are constantly happening with them, it has been uh, a nice add to be able to tell them that yeah we're also watching out for the trucks that we put our feet in we're also watching out for the mycotoxins that may come in with our incoming grain it just gives them an extra assurance of quality from contamination or adulteration that they uh, didn't have before the rule how
1: about from a a technical standpoint since we started uh realizing the value of this co-product of ethanol production uh Like ethanol production itself, has it also gone through the same kind of improvements, changes as we've uh, seen over time?
2: You know, I had a, a panel, a panelist, a Kurt, followed me with a very good presentation over predictable changes that may be further coming for our co-products. As as you know, we have uh, lowered the oil content of our feed relative to having another product called distiller's oil, which has been extremely beneficial to our production facilities. Uh, now we're working on the fiber portions. A lot of plants want to use the fiber to make uh, cellulosic ethanol with. That may change the DDGS to a point where uh, other nutritionists will have to get involved and will continue. And this is what I think are evolving co-products. And uh, the facilities that are producing those those newer co-products will do their feeds uh, feed work relative to FSMA and do feeding trials. And, and that way we can assure our downstream customers that uh, they're still getting a valuable product.
1: How about in terms of questions you might get from uh, our attendees here? Is there anything that um, they might have brought up and had as a question that kind of stands out for you or maybe you've heard uh, uh, as a common theme even or something?
2: I think a common theme around the hallways is the, the future changes of DDGS. We, we are mentioning it as a, as a group. Uh, there are people in the hallways that actually have products to sell relative to better co-product separation for better feed ingredients. We go to high-protein feeds. They'll be better for aquaculture and things like that. So we can change our feed relative to the species that needs fed.
1: Anything else before we close here? You might want to say about um, RFA, the work in this area, and um, you know, just uh, being able to uh, have, I think, for quite a while now, be—I uh, don't know what you call it—a major sponsor at least of this uh, conference.
2: We're proud to. We're proud to be a sponsor of the Export Exchange, and we'll be looking forward. Uh, We've been sitting here making plans for 2020 and what we think the audience may want to listen to. The crowd here is big. There are a lot of people interested, and as I said earlier, uh, there's not too many things that focus on distillers dry grain with solubles as our co-products in the industry, so we're always proud to support uh, the products that come out of any of our facilities.
1: Thank you very much, Kelly. It's great to see you here and visit with you at this Export Exchange. Finally in this week's program, I want to share an interview from World Dairy Expo, our sponsor there, Alltech, and Jamie interviews Pat Crowley, who talks about busting myths about mycotoxins.
2: We are here at the 2018 World Dairy Expo in the Alltech booth. Pat Crowley is the on-farm specialist for Alltech. Today, You know, we're going to talk about some of those common misconceptions when it comes to mycotoxins.
3: I think the biggest misconception I see Uh, When I'm talking to people, everyone thinks mycotoxins come from inclement weather conditions, droughts, rains, storms, hail. But a lot of these mycotoxins are mold-borne and they're coming from the field. So really the biggest misconception is they think it's coming from weather when it actually is coming from field practices, agronomy practices, rotating crops, tillage practices, insect damage. That's really where a lot of this stuff is driving from. Weather does play a big part of it but it really starts in the field also.
2: Well, you talked about weather and the role it plays. What does this year's weather look like when it comes to corn harvest?
3: We've had an extremely unique year. It's quite a story. And if we go back, and speaking for the Midwest, you go back into April, we were um, blessed with a 15 to 30 inch snowstorm, and it was um, quite dramatic. And it took a long time for that snow to disappear for the soil to warm up, and it delayed planting. And it's really getting off on the wrong foot when we start looking at our crops. So with a delayed planting, and then a lot of the Midwest, June, July, August, really did not have much rainfall. Coming into August 26th to 28th, now we're delivered with a tremendous rainfall, seeing so six to 12, 15 inches in areas up here. And it seems for the last month, we get a good day here and a good day there, but it hasn't stopped raining. And that this weather pattern is, uh, I haven't really seen anything like it. It's extremely unique and this is, Going to be possibly catastrophic to what we're going to see for crops and crop damage because with the rainfall and the stage of maturity of that. So, are there any telltale signs
2: that a producer can look for to indicate mycotoxins if they're present in their field earlier?
3: Uh, absolutely. I, I suggest and I, I do a lot of this on farm, walking out the fields with the producers, and I tell I tell everyone evaluate plant health. You know, it all starts with plant health. You want a healthy plant, just like a healthy cow or a healthy child. If we have a healthy plant, it's more resistant to challenges out in the field. So you need to go out and evaluate your crop health, um, but also when you're looking at your crop, evaluating the stalk, looking for spots, different molds that might be growing on it. And it, at this level with maturity right now, the husks are opening up, we're getting a lot of rainfall. So we're seeing some smut, some molds in between the kernels, so look at the ears also and kind of see if there's any growth out there. So if a producer suspects that they have mycotoxins, What's the best course of action? If you're out there and um, mycotoxins bring a great risk to the dairy business and and any uh, beef business and whatnot, the best tool in my toolbox is our 37 plus mycotoxin testing. Uh, it, It originated with evaluating 37, 38 mycotoxins and right now I feel we're at about 50, 51 mycotoxins. But that's the best tool you can go out and actually get hard evidence of what your risk is, what is your challenge out on the farm, that's specific, and we, we work with affiliated, accredited lab down in Kentucky, and it's based off of, they look for mycotoxins with, under certain molecular weights, molecular structure, so it's very specific testing. That's my best advice, if you're suspect of mycotoxins, work with the Alltech representative, use a 37 plus to evaluate the mycotoxin load. You can even do that at harvest. Uh, right now we are work with the harvest analysis program, looking at what, challenges are we seeing off the field at harvest? So even before it gets to the feed bunk and we're starting feeding it to animals, but where, what are we bringing off the field originally? And any tech representative can help you with that and, and really understand the risk and challenges that could be there or may not be.
2: Well, thank you, Pat. Once again, you can visit knowmymycotoxins.com slash free test have free access to the Alltech 37 plus mycotoxin test that Pat just shared with us here once again, Pat Crowley, on farm specialist for alltech here at the 2018 World Dairy Expo. I'm Jamie Johansson.
1: As I said at the beginning of the program, the Zimcom team, Cindy and myself will be in Kansas City for the NAFB convention. We'll be doing a lot of interviews, create a lot of content and especially for these farm broadcasters, via our Ag Newswire service, where they know they can come, it's their virtual Ag Newsroom, to find fresh content that is rights and cost-free to them. So that's the Zimcast for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it, and thank you for listening.
0: You've been listening to the Zimcast, the official podcast of AgWired. Check us out at www.agwired.com to find out what's new in agricultural marketing.